Scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians 51 through 58. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where of death is your victory? Where of death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is God's word. You may be seated. Inside your bulletin, you're going to find a a handout. The handout has... On the back of it, the Give 10 devotionals, the four days at 10 minutes on the back of it that we're doing with our classes draw near. But on the front of it, you'll find a sermon outline as well as the, uh, the order of worship this morning. As you know, we're, we're here to talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, something that we not only celebrate as a church family every Sunday, but it's something that we celebrate as disciples of Jesus every single day of the week as we marvel and we stand in awe and we glorify God at the fact that he looked at somebody like us and saved us and forgave us and loves us to this day and is patient with us and continually works in our life for us to become the human beings that we were always intended to be. And before we get into our text this morning, let's ask God to bless us as we we pray to him, asking for that blessing. Father, we are all sinners. We are all such profound, sinful people who struggle, who struggle with it each and every day. We are so grateful that there is a power, your power, that has come into our life and into this world because of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus in such a way that we do find ourselves growing more in love with you, more obedient to your will, more enthralled with your love, more amazed at your grace. And today, of all days this year, as the world looks to the cross and to an empty tomb, we pray, Father, to deepen our understanding of these, of these facts in such a way that we are completely transformed, completely transformed, and live our lives ever before you and ever before the eyes of people who live in your creation. And as we do so, Father, we do so as our Messiah with love and with patience 
and the kindness of Jesus. And this we pray with all of our heart in Jesus' name. And everyone said, we're going to talk about the death, burial, and resurrection. A couple of quick ways to think about it. The crucifixion is what God has done for us in Christ. We are forgiven. We have been redeemed. And the resurrection is what God has done in us through Christ. Jesus himself said, if you believe that I am the resurrection and the life, you will never die. And the context for Jesus' teaching was not only his, his entire ministerial life, three years, beginning at the age of 30. But it's really in that last week, leading up to the crucifixion, leading to his death and his burial and that resurrection. And so on, we're, we're going to review that week very quickly this morning. On Sunday, Jesus, on that Sunday that we call Palm Sunday, here in the United States, it was this past Sunday, Jesus rides the colt of a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 that says, Your king will come to you. Your king will come to you and he will be gentle. And he will be riding on a donkey's colt. And as Jesus crosses the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem and into the Golden Gate, into that temple area, there's a large crowd of people that are gathering. And they're laying their cloaks down and they're laying the palm branches down. And they're saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it is a highlight moment for the Savior. But it's also a moment of contrasting emotions as Jesus also weeps over the city of Jerusalem. In John 12, he says, if only you could see the path for peace that has been laid out in front of you. But instead, there's going to be a day in which not one stone is going to be left on top of another. It was a pronouncement of judgment on the city. And after looking around at the city, Jesus and his disciples returned to Bethany on the Mount of Olives. The next day, Monday, on the way back to the city, that Monday morning, he's hungry, finding a fig tree, but it has no fruit on it. He curses that fig tree. And he crosses again the Kidron Valley, goes into the Temple Mount. There's the second cleansing of the temple. There had been one earlier, the beginning of the Gospel of John. Now in the last week of his life, there is another one. Because the place where God and man were to meet had become anything but that with the way that money was exchanged and how the sacrificial animals were being, were, were being bartered. It was a place of, of rough business dealing. And people were going to worship with their hearts sort of fragmented because of the way that they had been treated. The, the place of forgiveness where sacrifices for forgiveness were being made had become a place for making profit because of someone else's vulnerability, having traveled afar and needing to change coins and buy a sacrificial victim. The place of grace had become a place of robbery. And every day he was teaching at the temple. And he sees that and he, he overruns, he overturns the tables. He, he says that the temple is not to be that den of robbers. And every day while he is teaching at the temple, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find a way to do it because all of the people were hanging on every word. And Jesus teaches again and again about the death, his death, 
soon. It's meaning. He says, a seed falls into the ground and it dies. And there's a voice that says to the seed, live. And a new life comes that is different from that of the seed. And what he's doing is he's giving an example of how a power is released into the world that defeats death. And now it's Tuesday. The morning begins with Jesus explaining to his disciples what had happened to the fig tree and its meaning. I mean, Peter's walking by and saying, oh, look, that fig tree that you cursed, it's withered. And Jesus says, yeah, and explains the reason why. He goes into the temple courts and his authority for his teaching and his actions as they have been for the past three years, are being questioned again. But this time he references John the Baptist. He says, if you'll answer me, I'll answer you. Tell me, by what authority did, you know, I, I do all of these things? They immediately see the danger in the way that he poses the question because if, if they say that John the Baptist is from God, Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you listen to him and what he had to say about me? But if he says, well, you know, John the Baptist was just a human being, they are afraid of the people because the people thought that John was a prophet. And so the chief priests and the elders say to him, you know, we don't really know what to say. And Jesus says, on my, the question about my authority and for my teaching and for my actions, I will not tell you either. But it's at this point that he begins to teach the people parables. Why does he use parables? It's one thing to tell people facts. But it's another thing altogether to tell people parables. Because when you tell a parable, you're, there's this, this visual that's being created for you. But on top of that, it makes you stop and, and think. It, it slows you down in order to think about what is being said. That's why he uses parables. He tells the one about the two sons early in the morning. Boys are up having breakfast. And he said, the landowner, the, the vineyard owner says, the father says to the two sons, I need you guys to go out into the vineyard today and work. The one son says, you know, I'll go, but then he doesn't show up. The other son says, nah, I got better things to do. But then he thinks about his father and he thinks about for the father. He turns around and he goes back into the vineyard. And Jesus asks, which one of these boys was obedient to the will of the father? There's the parable of the landowner, a landowner who rents out a vineyard when the time comes to share in the harvest, since servant after servant after servant after servant, they get beat up, they get rejected, they get beat up, they get rejected. The landowner says, well, I'm going to send my son. They'll at least respect him. They'll listen to him. It's not the story that we would think. Jesus says, no, this time they said it's the son. We'll kill the son and we'll be done with the father. They knew what he was talking about. Parable of the wedding feast and those who refused to go. The invite to go to a wedding. One of the few times in the year that you get to eat meat, that you get to, to drink and to eat fine foods and fine drink and to celebrate and not work. And those that had been invited said, you know, we got better things to do with our lives. So the landowner who's going to have the feast says, hey, go out and invite everyone else who will come to come in. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees know who he's talking about, and they want to get rid of Jesus in the worst way. And so they try to trap him in a question about paying taxes. Jesus gives that answer that's so famous, render unto Caesar the things that belong to Caesar's. The Sadducees get after him with a nonsensical question about marriage and resurrection. 
they don't believe in the resurrection. But Jesus says, you know, the problem with you Sadducees, you, you don't understand Scripture. You don't read Scripture in the right way to understand the power of God. And so you're off in both of those areas. But in the midst of all of this misunderstanding and trying to teach and to teach and to teach, there are those that are getting it. Somebody says, hey, just what, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that person says, I believe that with all of my heart. And Jesus says, amen to that. And he's pleased. Well, it's Wednesday, and you sense in this last week of Jesus' ministry prior to the crucifixion, a ramping up, the confrontational and challenging nature of Jesus' teaching. This time he's blunt. In Matthew 23, those woes pronounced on the Pharisees. In Matthew 24, a discourse on the destruction of Jerusalem. In Matthew 25, more parables, this time about wise and foolish virgins. Keep watch is the point. Look. Be prepared. Keep your eyes open. Be sensitive to what's going on around you. And then there's that discourse on the judgment where he uses sheep and goats as an explanation. And in Matthew 26, verse 2, Jesus says to his disciples, you know, the Passover is two days away. The Son of Man is going to be handed over to be crucified. The next verse, the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. They're plotting to arrest Jesus in some sly way and to kill him. Jesus is anointed with perfume by Mary. It's revealed something insidious is happening in the hearts of the disciples. Judas, one of the twelve, struggling. And Satan, the ancient accuser, enters into Judas's heart. A deal is struck involving 30 pieces of silver. Now it's Thursday. Passover preparations need to be made. They come to the meal. Finally, Jesus in John 13 washes the feet of the disciples. He gives them a new commandment about how they're to interact with one another and with uh, other believers. It says, you know, you love each other as I have loved you. Jesus appeals to Judas. And in this appeal, they all, in this thought about betrayal, they, in their hearts, are wondering themselves. And they say, surely not I, surely not I, surely not I. There's instructions about the meal with the bread being his body. The wine being his blood. Some final teachings. Peter being asked by Satan to be saved. I mean, how sobering is that? That the malevolent being in the entire universe who stands himself up against God says, Peter, I'd like to sit there. May I? At your right. Peter says, nah, will never happen. Jesus says, oh, Peter, please be humble. Be humble. And you'll deny me three times before the morning comes, before the rooster crows. They sing a hymn together. They crawl Mount of Ol to the Mount of Olives and into the Garden of Gethsemane. There's that Luke chapter 22, the prayer of Jesus in the garden. Sweat drops mingled with blood as he prays and prays and prays. The cup may pass from him. 
Jesus is about to face what you and I could never imagine in a thousand years. And all the battles for the rest of the day until his death are going to be won in this moment where it seems like he's falling apart. But he comes out of that prayer galvanized and strong and courageous and faithful to the will of God. And then it becomes Thursday night, early Friday morning, sometime after midnight, the betrayal of Jesus by Judas with a kiss, the chief priest, the detachment of soldiers, the Pharisees are there. Peter, good to his word, at least in part, tries to cut off the head of Malchus, ends up getting an ear. He's a fisherman. Jesus is bound and taken to Annas while Caiaphas convenes the Sanhedrin. Jesus' trial by the high priest Caiaphas ends with him grabbing his clothes and ripping them. And saying, I've heard enough. This is blasphemy. And they take turns striking him and spitting in his face. And all the while, Peter's denying. All he's denying that he knows Jesus, rooster crows, Jesus looks right at him. Weeps and he weeps and he weeps. Jesus is, is bound. He's taken to Pilate. Famous question, what is truth? Judas takes his own life. Jesus taken to Herod Antipas, who's a little bit emotionally unhinged. Friday's into full swing. Jesus is back a second time in front of, in front of Pilate. And Pilate stands up and he says, this man has done nothing deserving of death. Pilate's wife, by the way, has warned him not to have anything to do with this innocent man. But he's being, but he's a seasoned civil servant. He gets an idea. Usually about this time, I offer them, you know, somebody to set free from prison. This is the way I'll get out of having to mess with Jesus. I'll find Charles Manson, Barabbas, a murderer, and we'll stand him up and let him choose. And he thinks, I've, I've, this is my way out. But the crowd, incited by their leader, say, no, we want Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Give us the Charles Manson. Crucify him. There's another idea. What if I take Jesus and we beat him to a pulp into the ground and then I stand him up, blood and snot and saliva and spit. Then I'll stand him up and we'll see what they have to say. And it happens. And Jesus is standing there barely able to stand on his two feet. And they cry out, crucify him. And this time Pilate goes to the judge's seat and Jesus is sentenced to Golgotha, the place of the skull. Simon of Cyrene is grabbed to help him carry his cross. Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh, a step in the right direction towards a little bit of humanity. He's crucified between two criminals with the word King of the Jews emblazoned on his side above his head. And all the while, they're beating him and beating him and lying and mocking and striking him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Clothes disperse. Passers-by hurl insults at him. If you're the Son of God, come down off the cross. The thieves themselves, he's crucified between two thieves. The thieves mock him in Matthew 27, but one has a change of heart. It says, Lord, he is looking at a crucified man, beaten to a pulp, 
And he says, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus says, I will. There's some instructions given to John about his mother Mary. There's darkness in the entire land from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. Then in whatever voice that Jesus has left, he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, from Psalm 23. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, I'm thirsty. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he says, it is finished. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. How many of you want to cry like that? I used to. Curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom. The earthquake and the rock split. Tombs are opened up and some of the dead are raised to life. A centurion says, surely this was the Son of God. The Jews ask for the legs to be broken of those being crucified in order to speed up death because of the pending Passover. But the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, is already dead. To prove it, a soldier pierces his side. And in one of the great moments of courage in all the Bible, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus receive the body of the Christ. They prepare his body and place it in a tomb, and it's sealed. And then Sunday. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. And everything in the universe has changed. Question, what does it mean for Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection? to come as a power into the world. It means that there is a revolution that has started. Everyone knows what a revolution is. A revolution is a sudden, radical, and many times complete change to an existing structure or organization. When Jesus died in love, in love, When Jesus in love died on the cross for our sins and then resurrected on the first day of the week, the world became a different place. Most of the revolutions that we know start with hate. The revolution that Jesus introduced into the world was one of love and of forgiveness and of unity and reconciliation and redemption with God. And one of the revolutions that he brings, one of the ideas of revolution that he brings with his resurrection is that human beings need to be rescued. We're not that great. But humans are rescued in love. In Colossians chapter 1, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loved. One of the greatest messages that a human being can hear in this world, in this life, is that you are forgiven. Your sins are not going to trail behind you. You don't deserve it, but it comes to you because of a revolutionary kind of love. You're going to spend eternity with God. You don't deserve that, but because of a revolutionary 
way of loving human beings. God has adopted you back into his family. Isn't it interesting that Jesus was crucified at Passover? It was not at Tabernacles. It wasn't even at the Day of Atonement. Jesus' death on Passover signified that there was a new exodus, this time not out of Egypt, this time and forever out of sin. And that's why human beings are transformed by his death. The Gospels were written to invoke the revolution in each person. In other words, we are freed up from the power and the influence of idols in our life to become the humans that we were always intended to be. The image bearers of God, the, 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 the humans that bring glory to the greatness of his presence. And that's what it means to be his disciple. In Hebrews 2, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their, in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free us. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And then Paul writing to that church in Corinth says, We all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being what? Transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. And what this means is that disciples live revolutionary lives through faith. Jesus taught us to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. This revolution comes to every community and every neighborhood because it has happened in his followers. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had options. Go the zealot right and he could pick a fight. And there were those that just wanted him to pick a fight. The Essene route, and that was to move off into the desert with some kind of holiness movement and have nothing to do with the rest of, of the world. There was the Sadducean route where you make your, your, your deals and you make your life with the empire du jour. But Jesus in the garden said, I'm not going to run, I'm not going to fight, I'm not going to dazzle, but I'm going to die. And only his death would and only his death could deal with the real human problem of sin. And that's who we are. We are the people of hope and of love and of love and of hope. We are the ones who declare that the resurrection is true. We are the ones who are able to love the ones that no one else can love. We are the ones who serve the forgotten. We are the ones who can give generously because we have from his hands received everything. And we are the ones who can rise above despair and discouragement and defeat and hopelessness and heartbreak or failure because a voice said to us in the moment of our salvation, live. And a spirit was put inside of us to testify daily that we are his children. And every day we say with the angel at the tomb, he is not here, he has risen. And we are the ones who say with the redeemed throughout the centuries, He is not here. He is risen. Say those words with me. He 
is not here. He has risen. Let's stand and sing. Commander of a king, golden majesty, let all the earth rejoice, all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light, and darkness tries to hide. It trembles at his voice, trembles at his voice. How great! 